several years ago, a friend and I were swapping some funny church stories. I don't know if you know this or not, but every now and then churches do weird things and even some dumb things. Did you know that? And so we were sharing some stories about things that happened in church that we couldn't believe. And, and uh, I didn't grow up going to church and he grew up in a very conservative, uh, incredibly conservative Baptist church culture. And so he had some really funny stories about church growing up. And he said, uh, basically, uh, our church taught that we were right and every other church was wrong. He said, so not only were we standing firm against Satan, we were standing firm against every other church in town. And I asked him, I said, now come on, was it really that bad? He said, well, uh, let me tell you, put it to you this way. He said, my mom went to the church, the very conservative one, and took us as kids. And he said, my mom and dad had an agreement where they went to separate churches. He grew up in a different tradition, and so they disagreed they would go to separate churches. Both were incredibly faithful. He said, however, uh, he said, my mom would pray every night that my dad's church would burn down so he would have to come to our church and hear the true word of God being preached, unfiltered. And I said, are you serious? He said, I am not even joking. That is a true story. Now, that's a funny story, but let's be honest. In a Baptist church, when we talk about false teaching, it's not too hard for us to conclude that the pastor's actually talking about our Methodist neighbors. Am I right? Like, that's just who we are and how we operate, and that's how we roll. And so last week, we took a break from our stand series to recognize our graduates. And so this week, we're going to jump back into Second Peter uh, for a message titled, Trust Me, I'm a Pastor. Now, uh, turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 2. And so uh, those who know me well know that one of my go-to phrases when I want to deceive someone, when I want to pull something over on someone, is they start questioning me or question my mother, say, hey, listen, trust me, I'm a pastor. And uh, they've become wise to my scheme. And unfortunately, that phrase in culture uh, is getting less and less persuasive as the years go by because one Google search and you can spend your entire weekend reading articles and blogs about the latest pastors got involved in some type of scandal involving sex or money or a mixture of both. And so a couple weeks ago, Chris preached the first message out of chapter 2 where Paul began to deal with this idea of false teachers. In other words, uh, just because someone stands behind a pulpit uh, and looks official doesn't mean they should be followed and trusted implicitly. And so we're going to pick up on that conversation in chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 12 down through verse 22 this morning. Verse 12, he says, but these, uh, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, uh, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. And will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous or greedy practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And then verse 18. For when they speak great, swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, uh, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty or freedom, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
they are again entangled them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than from the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Then verse 22, one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. I would not encourage you to make this uh, your life verse, but I do like verse 22. It says this, but it happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. Would you say amen this morning? Not great verse. That's an encouraging word, is it not? That was actually the title of my sermon. But anyway, and a sow having washed to her own wallowing in the mire. Basically, that's a mouthful at the end. What he's saying is these people were set free in, in true Jesus Christ and a false teacher came along. They were deceived and now they become enslaved in this false teaching. And here they were in freedom and now they're going back under bondage like a dog returning to its vomit or a pig that was all cleaned up and now it's muddy again. It's the idea that he's uh, dis- dis- distincting there at the end of chapter 2. Now, let me draw you into the conversation this morning a little bit because there's a temptation upon reading that uh, to check out and the reason is uh, for a couple reasons one there's some confusing terminology at the end of chapter two and so sometimes we just distance ourselves and I'm not totally sure what that means or what we just read so I'm not going to dig into that and secondly uh, that no one is feeling imminent danger of getting caught up in a cult and I'm, I'm assuming that you love your pastor would you say amen if that's true good that was pretty good I'm encouraged But at the end of the service, if I call you forward and say, hey, listen, for refreshments today, we've got a lot of Kool-Aid up here. You're welcome to come and drink it. Most of you are not drinking the Kool-Aid. Now, a couple of you are thinking, I love my pastor. I would do it for you. Amen. I would do it, right? But most of you are saying, I I would not do that. And so how is this passage relatable? I don't feel the temptation of getting caught up in a cult. And so let me define some terms for you here on the front end before you mark this off as irrelevant uh, to daily life. And so let me explain the difference between you of two things. One is a true false teacher and the other uh, is just false teaching or uh, bad theology. And if you don't understand the difference, uh, then there will be the temptation to walk through a passage like this and label everyone who disagrees with you a false prophet. Now, if you think Christians don't do that, then you just haven't been coming to church long enough. I've heard more than my fair share of people proclaim that someone else is a false prophet. I've watched some people build their ministries on identifying other people's false and false prophecies. That's all they talk about. And so, uh, raise your hand if you've ever heard the word heretic. Raise your hand. Some of you got a smile on your face. I'm not sure why. You're like, oh yeah. Raise your hand if you've ever called someone a heretic. Would you just do that? Yeah, one bold soul in the whole congregation. Well, here's the reality. Uh, we, that is a, not a popular word in church. We should bring that back into fashion, by the way. Is that not a fun word to say? That, and I always wonder what happened to the word backslider. Remember that? Like you hadn't been to church if someone hadn't called you a backslider. We need to bring that back into fashion. And so, so we, you, we're not totally sure what that word is because we don't use it a lot, but it is a biblical, a theological word. And so let me just draw the distinction here between a true heretic and someone uh, who's just got involved in, in bad theology that I know how to totally handle the scripture. A heretic is a person whose teaching is so far off the fundamental tenets of Christianity, they're no longer even a Christian. They were never a Christian in the first place. Uh, Their teaching, uh, whatever it is, is false in an area that actually dismantles the whole gospel. Now, a person who may have bad theology, uh, it's not that serious. 
And so they may disagree with you on the timing of the return of Christ. That doesn't make them a heretic. They may disagree with you on the age of the earth. They may disagree with you on the issue of eternal security or sign gifts or all these other kinds of things, but they're not necessarily a heretic. And so who, who uh, Peter is writing about here are true false teachers. Not, not people engaged in some false teaching, but true false teachers who are leading people astray. So that's what he's talking about. These people were not even saved. They are true false teachers in the most classic uh, sense of the word. And what happens with a false teacher is this. They're not uh, coming out uh, with a pitchfork and say, hey, listen, follow me. I'm loading up a bus uh, to, to hell. Get on board, right? What they're doing is they're coming and there's just enough truth mixed in with error that it's very deceiving. It's subtle that chapter 2 verse 1 talks about. But the temptation for everybody in the room this morning may not be from from a true false teacher getting involved in some kind of cultish uh, practice or faith tradition. But it is to be deceived by false teaching or bad theology. Listen, my heart as your pastor is this. I don't want you to be led astray by either. And I've watched over 15 years of ministry, people who started off on solid footing. I've watched some people walk away and get involved in cultic activity. And that's a, that's a small number, but I've watched it happen. I've watched a large number of people start off on sound footing theologically, and all of a sudden something new comes along, something that appeals to them, something exciting. There's a lot of momentum around it, and all of a sudden they're caught up in it under the banner. Well, listen, if it wasn't truth, God's clearly blessing it because so many people are following it. And they're deceived through that. So I want you to understand the difference. These are true false teachers in the truest sense of the word in the text. But you can also be deceived by false teaching or bad theology. And the principles in guarding your heart against both of them are going to be the same in walking through this text. Now, that's a lot of content before we get to the text. And I know that some of you are getting nervous. But I promise you, uh, we'll still beat those Presbyterian heretics to lunch today. All right? So... I'm going to, I want you to listen fast because we're going to get going here this morning. So in walking through this text, what I want you to see first and foremost is simply this, is that false teachers are slaves to unashamed lust. They are slaves to unashamed lust. I want you to draw your attention uh, to something, and that's this. Many times we see someone, some famous pastor, it seems like every other week or every other month, you're reading a story that some pastor uh, got involved in some type of scandal. Uh, He was pursuing some lavish lifestyle, and it turned out he was fraudulent. He got involved in in sexual immorality. And many times what you'll find out is those two sins are linked together. Not only were they pursuing a lavish lifestyle, they were also engaged in sexual morality. We could uh, lay out a laundry list of people in prominent ministries where that has been true. Here's what I want you to understand. That is not coincidental. That is not coincidental. When someone's pursuing a lavish lifestyle under the banner of God, and then we find out later they're caught up in sexual morality, we're shocked. Not only were we involved in this, they were also involved in this. And that is not coincidental according uh, to the text. And so what happens, the problem is this, when when I think of lust, let's just be honest, when I mention the word lust, where does your mind go? It goes into, (laughs) some, some, some brother had a word over there, little brother had a word over there, right? We just have uh, unfortunately narrowed that down to the arena of, of, of sex and temptation. But listen, lust from a biblical perspective is wanting anything, wanting anything more than I want Christ and his righteousness in my life. 
And so both of those, pursuing a greedy lifestyle and sexual morality, are just the fruit of a lustful heart. Matter of fact, uh, many times in the Scripture, the Bible doesn't disconnect those things, like I can't believe they're involved in that, and then we found it later, they were involved in this. No, the Bible says it's all the same root issue. It's all the same overflow from the heart issue of lust. And the Bible connects those sins together. Listen uh, to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. It says, uh, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Those things are linked together in that passage. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual morality, there's one, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy. There it is again. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Now, in verses 12 through 14, there's a little uh, intersect from the uh, first half of chapter 2. And, and Chris taught the beginning of that a couple weeks ago. Uh, so um, I'm going to do a much better job of explaining it this morning, though, all right? I'm totally kidding. I read his manuscript. He did an incredible job. But there is some overlap there. And I want you to understand this, that anytime there's overlap in the Scripture or repetition, it's for the sake of emphasis, and so at the beginning half of chapter 2, he talks about this idea of greed being the fruit of a false teacher. And then he comes back and says, by the way, in case you forgot, if you want to know what a false teacher looks like, here's one of the fruits of their life. They're consumed by greed and lavish uh, living. And so that's what he talks about. Look at uh, verses 12 through 14 and the description of what their life is like, these false teachers. He said, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. What's he talking about? Uh, an animal doesn't have any instincts. We joke all the time. Our dog right now, and I probably shouldn't tell you this. Our dog right now, if you came over, uh, has her hair highlighted. Now, some of you are thinking, speaking of having too much money, who highlights their dog's hair? Well, it's not what you think. Uh, it, it, woven in the strands of her hair are red streaks. And they're ketchup. And the reason... It's because she cannot help herself if any scrap of food is left on the table. Like, it's turned into a game in my house. Will she eat this? The other day, one of my kids said, hey, you think the dog likes asparagus? I'm like, no dog likes asparagus. Guess what? Our dog loves asparagus. Our dog's part Mexican. She loves tortilla chips. She can't eat enough. And so she got on the table, and, and there were some fries left on there and ketchup, and she just dug her way, and there's trash was strewn about, right? And so she got all this. Why do I tell you that? Because she can't control her natural lust towards those things. I know it's going to happen. I don't have to, I don't have to pray and say, Lord, prompt our dog to eat our food when we're not watching. Because it's a part of her nature. It is impulsive. What's he saying uh, in the beginning of verse 12? He said that these like natural brute beasts, hey, listen, a true false teacher doesn't have to work hard to turn their heart towards greed. It is impulsive within them. They are controlled and consumed by it is the reason he gives that description. That's the comparison he makes. So what are they controlled and consumed by? Uh, look at verse 13, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse uh, in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes causing their own deceptions while they feast with you. Now listen, here it is. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. They, 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 cannot, they, they couldn't stop if they wanted to. Why? Because they're not believers, and an unbeliever is a slave to their sin. Listen, when Christ saves us, he saves us not only from the penalty of sin after death, Christ saves us from the power of sin. 
But these false teachers have never been converted, and so they're slaves to their own lust. They can't stop if they wanted to, is what he's saying in verse 14, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in greedy or covetous practices and are accursed children. Later, or earlier in verse 3, he talks about their, their greed, uh, exploiting people with false words. He talks about them being trained in greed. In verse uh, 14, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, uh, listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul said that false teachers suppose that godliness is a means of gain, and teachers who love money will teach whatever it takes to fill the coffers. They're missionaries, they're mercenaries, uh, going after the highest bidder. They turn ministry into a profit machine, and they cannot control their appetite for material gain. That is a telltale mark of a false teacher. And so you say, what about people that I see on TV and their lavish kind of lifestyles? Take heed. Take heed. Now, I cannot teach this principle with integrity in this passage without addressing what is known as the prosperity gospel. Uh, Simply put, the prosperity gospel teaches that God wants uh, believers to be physically happy, materially wealthy, and uh, personally, uh, or physically healthy, materially wealthy, and personally happy. Uh, The prosperity gospel is so much what you see on Christian television. Uh, David Jones is a professor and author at Southeastern Theological Seminary. He wrote a book in 2010 titled Health, Wealth, and Happiness, has the prosperity gospel overshadowed the gospel of Christ? And so let me uh, share with you an excerpt out of his book that highlights where the prosperity gospel has bankrupt theology. And so he says, the false teaching of the prosperity gospel, I'm just going to share three of them. Uh, one is this, that Jesus' atonement extends to the sin of material poverty. Now, the atonement is just a big theological word for Christ's work on the cross. On the cross, he atoned for our sins. And so uh, what prosperity gospel teaches is that Christ not only died for our sins, but Christ also died for the sins of poverty. Can I just tell you something? If something is true, you can preach it all over the world and it's still true. You take that garbage and preach it in some third world country and then ask people, is God real? Truth is universal. It can preach anywhere. Theological Evaluation of the Prosperity Gospel is an article I came across written by a guy named Ken Sorrells. And he said this, the prosperity gospel claims that both physical healing and financial prosperity have been provided for uh, in the atonement. In other words, uh, listen, Christ not only died to save you from your sins, Christ died to save you from being in the middle class or in poverty. Now, where do they get that from? It's from misinterpretation of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It reads this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, what he's actually teaching there is the exact opposite. What Paul was teaching is, hey, listen, in light of the fact that Christ uh, voluntarily emptied himself of all of his heavenly inheritance and riches, that's called the doctrine of kenosis, in light of that fact, you should be so willing to empty yourself to meet the needs of other people. You say, how do you know that's what that verse really means? Because at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 14, Paul urges the Corinthians to do that very thing. Just five verses later, he said, hey, Christ emptied himself of his resources for your sake. And you should follow suit. 
Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14. That now at this time, your abundance, your wealth, may supply their lack. He's talking about the needy brothers uh, the giving to, to their offering. Just keep reading the text, and guess what? It totally demolishes that theology. Let me give you a second poor uh, tenet of the prosperity gospel. is that Christians give in order to gain material compensation from God. Uh, one of the leading proponents of this is a... Uh, a teacher on, uh, called Robert Tilton, and he teaches the law of compensation, which, by the way, if you want to have a fun afternoon, just Google Robert Tilton and just see what comes up, and I'll, just, I'll leave you with that, all right? Some of you know, and you're like, it's really funny. It is. According to this law, purportedly boasts, uh, based on Mark chapter 10, verse uh, 30, Christians should give generously to other people. Why? For the sole purpose that God, in turn, uh, will give you more. This leads to a cycle of ever-increasing prosperity. Now, how do I know that's not what Mark 10.30 means? Now, you say, do, do other people get deceived by that? I, I remember being in church, in, in, in a Bible-teaching church that I was pastoring early on in my ministry, and uh, someone had gotten caught up in watching this kind of thing and listening to this teaching, and they said, hey, pastor, I want you to know something. I finally started giving and trusting God. I said, that's great. That's a step of growth. I'm so proud of you. They said, but I quit. And I said, well, Why? They said, because after doing it for so long, every day I would go out to the mailbox and there was nothing out there but bills. And they got caught up in it. Now, how do I know that's not what Mark 10, 30 is teaching? Because I keep reading the text. Five verses later, Mark chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus taught his disciples to give, hoping for nothing in return. The exact opposite of what the prosperity gospel teaches. Let me give you a third tenet of prosperity gospel is that prayer is a tool to force God to grant uh, prosperity. James chapter 4, the prosperity gospel preacher says, hey, you have not uh, because you ask not. And so they, uh, over and over, and one uh, famous prosperity teacher said this. He said, when we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, listen to this, this is ludicrous, listen to this. God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. Now, is it wrong to, for God to pray to bless my life? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But the prosperity gospel's uh, emphasis is not on God and his provision. It's on me, and I've handcuffed a sovereign God to force him to do exactly what I want him to do. Now, keep reading that text, James chapter 4, verse 2. You have not because you ask not. That seems like I should pray for what I want, right? Uh, but listen to verse 3, same chapter. Keep reading the text. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your greedy passions. The very exact opposite of what they're teaching. Now, listen to me closely. My biggest problem with the prosperity gospel is that it's not prosperous enough. You say, what do you mean by that? In salvation, I get so much grace that I go from guilty and condemned to guilty and pardoned. Folks, you can't put a price tag on that. That when Christ saved me, he gave me a new standing before God that no amount of riches could purchase on my behalf. That the Bible says he brought me into his family. He reached down into a miry pit and lifted me up and seated me in the heavenly places and everything that as Christ has been given to me. I don't care how much you pray for, you'll never be as rich as what Christ provides for you when he saves you. Don't tempt me with worldly wealth from an earth that's going to burn. Listen, give me Jesus, amen? I've got all the riches that I need. And so the prosperity gospel isn't prosperous enough. You get so much more than money. You are rich. False teachers pursue things, these things. Listen, here's the other thing. They do it in 
open daylight. They're not ashamed of it. They, listen, they do it in open daylight. Two times in the text he said that. Go back to verse 10. Verse 10 in chapter 2 says, Especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lusts of uncleanness. So these are those who, the walk means lifestyle. Listen, their life is characterized by it. They're not, they're not every now and then sneaking around. It's their lifestyle. Go back to verse 14. Or actually, I'm sorry, go back to verse Verse 13. And they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Here it is. And those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They're not secret about it. They're openly in the daylight saying, hey, this is what I'm teaching. Don't you want to get on board? Don't you want to be a part of this? This is the way of their life. And the Bible says this, uh, that that they're so open and unashamed about it uh, that they'll reject anyone. Who tries to speak against it? Uh, verse 10 is those who walk according to the flesh in the lusts of uncleanness and despise authority. What do you mean they despise authority? Anyone who speaks against what they're teaching, they openly reject it and they continue to walk in the daylight. Now, let me show you this to be true in a little video clip uh, where you'll see unashamed pursuit of a lavish lifestyle and the shaming of those who try to speak accountability into that lifestyle. Here, here's just a little clip that I came across this week. Brother Copeland, I was flying home from a meeting, and I had come out of a glorious meeting. I had just been, me and Creflo Dollar were preaching. Had a glorious meeting. So I was, for lack of a better way to say it, I was spiritually high. I said, people yeah. were saved, touched, and blessed. Got in the plane that God so graciously gave us, we're flying home. As I was going home, the Lord, real quickly, he said, Jesse, do you like your plane? Now, you know, I thought that's an odd statement. He gave, I said, well, certainly, Lord. He said, do you really like it? And I thought, well, yes, Lord. He said, then he said this, so that's it? I didn't know how to handle it, but I went, what? He said, you're going to let your faith stagnate? And when he said that, that shocked me. I went, whoa, wait. I literally unbuckled my seatbelt, my plane, I stood up. My pilots looked around and said, do you need something? I said, no, no, I'm talking to God right now. And he, just, <laughs> and he went back to flying. I said, Lord, I don't think I was letting my faith stagnate. He said, so this is all I could ever do. I said, you want, you, you're trying to tell me something. He said, go to the book of Amos. So if you had the book of Amos, I want to read may, the scripture. May I interrupt right you yes, sir. for a second? Mm-hmm. You couldn't have done that on an airliner. No, sir. No way. Stand up and say, what'd you say, Lord? No. Okay, no, yeah. And the guy sitting over there saying, what the hell does he think he's doing? <laughs> you can't do you that. You can't do that. No, no. This, this is so important. And those of you that are, that are just now coming into these things, um, in, in the first place, Jesse and, 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 and I and, and others, Keith Moore and Creflo and all of us, they, the world is in such a shape. We can't get there without this. That's right. We've got to have this. We would have the mess that the airlines are in today. I would have to stop. I'm being very conservative. At least 75 to 80, more like 90% of what we're doing. Because you can't get there from here. It's impossible. Ushers, if you'll come forward. (laughs) Now listen to me this morning. Is every charismatic a false teacher? Absolutely not. Is the prosperity gospel a false gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Bible says unashamedly in resisting those who speak authority against it here's the second thing i want you to see in this text false teachers cannot deliver on their promises 
Uh, Peter describes these men very clearly in verse 17. Look at verse 17. What's he say? These, being false teachers, are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness uh, forever. So he describes them as springs without water. He said they're like a dry oasis in a desert storm. You're thirsty. you, You need something. You're desperate. And you come upon a well only to discover it's empty. It's like a cloud on the horizon of a desert. And you see, here it comes and it's bringing rain. And then it just goes on by and it's a false promise. Again, false teachers cannot deliver on their promises. They promote freedom in Christ, but you're still chained up to sin and to suffering. And the way they do it is in a very uh, subtle way. It's what uh, chapter 2 verse 1 talks about. And the way that it's subtle is there's just enough truth mixed in with the error that you can't stand uh, against it. So they have a track record of not being able to deliver their promises, promising people uh, prosperity and they're still living in poverty, promising people uh, deliverance from sin and suffering and they're still walking and struggling. Uh, I I watched just all kinds of clips this morning. We just don't have time to go through all the false promises. So here's a question. So if their track record is they can't fulfill their promises, if their track record is they're like wells without water in a storm cloud without rain, then how are people deceived? How does that still happen? How do, how do they still just fill their coffers under the banner of Christ? Well, the text clearly says, so let me walk you through uh, the second part here, how to deal with and guard against uh, false teachers. And so the first thing I want you to tell, tell you is this. Again, not, maybe not true false teachers, but at the very least, false teaching. Uh, number one, be wise to their approach. Be wise to their approach. False teachers will appeal to your fleshly desires. They say, hey, do you want this? Don't you desire this? And you're thinking, oh, with every ounce in me, then if you'll just do this, then God will provide. They tell people what they want to hear because people are desperate for hope. Now, how do you know that's how they do it? Because the text tells me. Look at verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they can't fulfill their promise. Look at what it says. They allure or they tempt, how? Through the lust of the flesh. They appeal to your own desires. Hey, you want to be successful? Don't you want to be rich? Don't you want to walk again? Don't don't you want, and you're thinking, yes. Yes, I do. And then they've got you, you're hooked in. And that's exactly what they appeal to. They promise to satisfy our cravings. And by the way, this is not the only place in the Bible we're warned of that. Jude chapter 1 verse 4, listen to this verse. It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed too long ago were designated for condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. What does that mean? Instead of offering you grace, they offer you something that appeals to your senses. Jude chapter 1, uh, verse 4, the Bible also says this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their ears want to hear. They will turn their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Why in the world do people still do that? Why in the world do people still give money to people like that? It's because they desperately want what they're offering to the point they want it so bad that they're willing to abandon sound doctrine is exactly 
what the scripture says. God doesn't want you in poverty to sow a financial seed and reap a harvest. God doesn't want you sick. Buy this prayer cloth and get well. God doesn't want you to suffer, so name and claim your destiny because the miracle is in your mouth. I could go on and on and on. And people want freedom from what they're hurting from so bad that they'll abandon sound teaching to get it. You say, do you know that? Look at verse 19. They promise them what? Liberty. They promise them freedom. You're bound up in a cycle of poverty. I want you to be free. I'm offering freedom. You're bound up in a cycle of discouragement, depression. I'm offering freedom. You're bound up in some kind of physical ailment, broken, relateless, just fill in the blanket, doesn't matter. I'm offering freedom. And the people desperately want freedom so bad, they'll write checks and abandon sound theology. And they're willing to trade sound doctrine from the desire, for the desire of having their uh, desires fulfilled. They knew that it looked and felt like a mirage. But they were so desperate for an oasis that they ran towards it anyway. Second way to guard your heart is this. Be more enamored with a teacher's life than his words. If you're listening, say amen. This is very important. Very important. A pastor's life is not the same thing as his public ministry. Now, should those two things be consistent with integrity? Absolutely. But do not be deceived that someone has a successful public ministry that is the overflow of God's blessing on their life. A pastor's life and his public ministry are not the same thing. Can a church be large and a leader be holy? Absolutely. Can a church be large and committed to sound doctrine? Absolutely. But ministry attendance is not the fruit to look for when deciding if that pastor is truly a blessed by God. Attendance does not determine anointing, even though anointing is more of an Old Testament term that gives you the idea. And I can't tell you how many times people would speak to the ministries of those whose lives are characterized by greed and lavishness, and they would say, well, they must be doing something right because so many people attend their church. I want you to think about something. If attendance is the marker of God's blessing on a person's personal life, then Jesus Christ himself, according to John chapter 6, was a failure. Because the Bible says at the end of John chapter 6, verses 60 down through verse 66, that many of them walked with him no more. Many more people walked away from Jesus than walked with him. You get all caught up in attendance, you get all caught up in those kinds of things. Listen, then Jesus was a failure. Listen to Matthew chapter 7 this morning, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Listen, you will recognize them by their fruits. What does that mean? You'll recognize them by the observable outward characteristics of their life. He doesn't say you will recognize them by their ministry. You'll recognize them by the attendance at their church. He says, no, no, you'll recognize them by their fruits. And he goes on to say, because a bad tree can't produce good fruit, and a good tree can't produce bad fruit. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 12 through 15, it says, Satan himself transforms himself into angels of light. Listen, verse 15, therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. What's he saying? Some people in the pulpit are working for the other team. That's exactly what that verse means. 
It's exactly what's going on in this passage in 2 Peter chapter 2. It's more important who a pastor is off the platform than who he is on it. Give me a guy who can't preach, who lives a life of holiness all day long. I'll follow that guy as opposed to a guy where thousands come who's leading a life of wickedness. Here's the last thing. How else do we guard and handle false teachers? We expose them and warn others. We expose them and warn others. That thought makes some of you uncomfortable. Some of you probably didn't like that I showed that video and mentioned some names. But but is that even biblical to expose them and warn others? Well, listen to what the Bible says. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Uh, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith, among them are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to taunt, not to blaspheme. Paul names him by name. He warns people, stay away from these people. They're shipwrecking people's faith. Second Timothy chapter 2, one book over. Do your best to present yourself a God as one approved, a workman who does not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter. Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus. He names another one. They've wandered away from the truth and are deceiving others. Paul says, hey, listen. If anyone's teaching is leading people astray away from the gospel or leading them into false theology, mark them as those who cause division and stay away from them. Hear me this morning. If you're listening, say amen. If I ever get to the point where what I'm teaching is not sound theology, do the kingdom of God a favor and fire me. That's what someone said, amen. I don't, that wasn't, that wasn't the place for an amen, all right? Looking down at my wife, she's going, oh, stop, stop. And Paul mentions false teachers by name to warning. We should do the same. Let me just tell you this on a personal note. We're, we're done. I cannot recount for you how many times as a pastor I've had people sit across from me in my office in tears where they've suffered by being taught the scripture in a poor way. I've watched people cry tears and say, if I'd only had more faith, God would have healed me or that person. Bad theology. I've watched people say, if I'd only been more holy, God wouldn't have allowed this tragedy in my life. That's what my last pastor taught me, bad theology. I've watched people cry, broken, not even wondering if they're saved because they feel like they've fallen out of God's grace, bad theology. I've watched people give money away that they didn't have to meet bills that they couldn't pay because someone somewhere tempted them and offered them something that they desperately wanted. Paul says, mark those and warn people. Shepherd the flock from wolves. So here is the gospel truth, and we're done. The gospel truth is this, is that Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross to save people from the penalty of their sins, not poverty. And the good news is, he's still doing that very thing today. That is good news. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, 
If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel is this, is that Christ died to save sinners. Jesus didn't come for those who have no need. Jesus didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. And so if you're here this morning and you've never come to the place of asking Jesus to save you, you've never come to the place of confessing your sins and inviting Christ into your life as your Savior. Listen, today the good news is Jesus Christ still saves sinners. And you can be saved today, right now, right where you're sitting in this very moment. You can be saved today. You don't have to wonder if you're going to heaven. You can be saved right now. If that's your heart's desire, if you've never been saved, would you pray with me? This prayer isn't some magic formula. It's the faith behind it that saves a person. Would you pray with me if it's your heart's desire to be saved? God, I know that you love me as evidence by what Jesus did for me on the cross. But I also confess today that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. And I want Jesus Christ to come into my life and forgive me my sins and be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. If you're here this morning, you prayed that by faith. The Bible says that Christ comes into your heart and dwells with you. You become a new creation in Jesus Christ, free from sin's penalty and sin's power. My guess is for many of you, you've already committed your lives to Christ. But maybe along the way, you've gotten caught up in some bad teaching. It's crept in to your life. And one of the most common ways that happens is we began to actually believe that the difficult places in our life are God's punishment. That somehow if we'd have been more faithful, somehow if we'd have been more holy, God wouldn't allow this tragedy. Listen, that's false teaching from the enemy. Because the Bible says that for those who are in Jesus Christ, there is no punishment. Romans 8.1. And so if you're here this morning and you've been struggling with those thoughts, would you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, I need, I need set free from that. Would you just raise your hand this morning? I'm afraid my hard life has become the result of what I've done. Amen. Anybody else this morning? Amen. Anyone else? Let me pray for you that raised your hand. Father, I pray for those that raised their hand that God, you would help them to walk in grace. You would help them to understand that grace saves, grace sustains, and grace seals. And that, Father, they no longer would allow false teaching in the enemy to come against them and accuse us as he does that somehow this trial is a result of their sin. So, Father, if it's the result of consequences, give them wisdom to turn from it. But, Father, those who are being accused falsely, help them stand on the truth of God's word. Help them stand in the grace of God. We're thankful for freedom we have in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the word of God and sufficient wisdom. We commit our lives to it in the Jesus that it proclaims. In his name we pray, amen.